When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard and this is me old muck of Benners. We're back together, son. How are you? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So... We haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by Oliver Deman Hamans. To be more like Oliver, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Show and grow the show today if you're feeling low the jomala show will give you things to talk about if you're feeling down then the bearded clown will give you things to talk about yo (laughs) joe i know you don't like doing the usual introductions you find it a bit sterile should we do this in a totally different way? Yeah, go for it. Ready? Hello. <laughs> Hello. No, you do and. Okay, sorry, go. Hello. And. Welcome. To. Our. Show. I'm. Joe. Marla. Uh, <laughs> Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marla. This is Tom Fordyce. He's the ideas guy and he fucks it up every time. How are you, Tom? You got hot chocolate on the go there, Joe. Mm. Oh, fuck, it's good. There was this guy called Ruben, which is a great name, by the way. He persuaded, he said, can I recommend uh, a drink for you? And we, I said, yeah. He said, oh, go hot chocolate. And I went, okay, hot chocolate it is. He said, but can I also recommend that you go with the, with not regular milk, you go with... Well, this is where it gets interesting because the words that I heard were oat milk, which made sense to me because he had a carton of oat milk um, it's not on what the I can. Heard. So- I heard and I saw his mouth say goat's milk. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? And he went, yeah, I tend to find it. I said, why not cow's milk then? And he was like, well, the cow's milk tends to make the hot chocolate a little bit more, bring out the bitterness in it more. So I advised going for the goat's milk. And I went, are you just saying that because you've run out of normal milk? And he went, no, I've got loads of cow's milk. I said, yeah, let's go for the goat's milk. And then we get out and I said, yeah, this goat's milk's creamy and lovely. And you go, it's fucking oat milk, you <laughs> idiot. So I like it. It's hot chocolate and it's nice. Have you ever been offered in that scenario, in a cafe, barista, whatever, has anyone ever offered you goat's milk before? So, yeah, goat's, <laughs> so goat's cheese I've been offered a lot, which is technically hard goat's milk. So, yes, is my answer to that. 
Um, Joe, it is the opening weekend of the Six Nations coming up soon. Steve wanted me to ask you um, if you're excited to be in the squad. Um, I'm not going to ask that because that would be the most ridiculous question I've ever asked you. It would be the sort of question I might have asked you three years ago. Why is he looking at you like that? <laughs> Just do it a better way. <laughs> it's okay. like, this is so shit. Go. Joe, are you excited to be in the Six Nations squad? Flower of Scotland, when will we see the like again? A fortune died for... Do you know that Flower of Scotland was quite a recent invention? How recent? It was a hit in the 70s. No way. William so. Wallace wasn't in the 70s? No. It's a pop song. By who? Steve, can you... Mm-hmm. Um, Flower of Scotland, Joe, was not the 70s. It was composed in the mid-1960s by Roy Williamson of the folk group The Coddies. It was first heard publicly in the 1967 BBC television series in A. The words refer to the victory of the Scots led by Robert the Bruce over Edward II of England. Um, Is that true then? Did Robert the Bruce actually Judas William Wallace and then go back on himself by going after the king that he had judas William Wallace on behalf of. That I don't know, but I can tell you, Joe, that the song was first adopted as the pre-game anthem for the pivotal and epoch-defining deciding match of the 1995 Nations Championship, uh, which Scotland won 13-7 to win the Grand Slam. No, no, don't dismiss me like that. I want to talk a little bit about the the Scottish history, and I thought you, being a well-versed man in the history of the world... That you'd give me a little bit on that. Is that is is Braveheart true? You know that face you gave me when I said that I wasn't a fan of Adele? Oh, fuck off. Right. You not watch Braveheart? I've never seen Braveheart. Oh, not once. Oh, my God. Eyebrows? All right, eyebrows. <gasps> I'm going to call Murph. Cause I she mean, she won't remember. Well, she's, yeah, but she's Scottish. Why? She's called Murphy. Steve's losing his shit. Let's <laughs> let's get it on back. Yeah, no, we're uh, into the rugby, um, the rugby union, um, the Six Nations, that famous uh, tournament, and I'm very excited for it to start again, particularly with fans that we haven't had for a couple of years, which is actually all I care about these days. Uh, okay, that will keep Steve happy. Um, something else to keep Steve happy, and indeed everyone happy, Joe. People can now grow the show on Apple. For £1 a week, just a single pound a week. You that get, is a bargain. You can get a version of this show without adverts. And they're extra long. Sometimes 20 minutes longer, Joe. But still loaded full of good stuff. You can also do the same on Spotify. Check the link in the episode description. If you're on Apple, look for the grey subscribe button. Have mm-hmm. we had any more uh, chat on docking? Well, actually, I've got some chat on docking, Joe. For reasons that need not concern us now, I have... Joined the local cricket club, having not played for a long time. Winter Nets started recently. I got a lift to Winter Nets from one of the lads on the WhatsApp group. Okay. Now, because of the nature of this story, I'm not going to give you Phil's name, but <laughs> it, it transpires that he's a big Quinns fan. He was wearing a Quinns tracksuit. Oh. Now, by the time that this comes out, I may well be friends with this bloke, so be careful what I say. Okay. But let's just say he was asking about the podcast and I told him about the sex worker episode and mentioned that we had learned several new things, including docking, at which point he nodded with the expression of a man who did indeed know what docking was. So I sort of began to describe what docking was to give him a get out. And he just went, you used to do it at rugby. What? As what? does So you described 
the whole of what docking is, yeah. according to Reed, our sex worker. Yeah. Sorry, Reed, the sex worker. Yeah, not us. <laughs> Someone else. Yep. And he was like, yeah, that is exactly what we used to do at the rugby club. Yeah. Fucking hell. But he said it like I said, oh, yeah, docking is buying your mate a pint. Oh, just there, the norm. Yeah, but there was no sort of apologetic look. There was no sort of sort of slightly cheeky little smirk or... Maybe, maybe docking's more popular than we first thought. Funny you should say that, Joe, because we had a message on Twitter from Kate May. Hi, Kate. Kate says the following. I asked my boyfriend if he knew what it meant, docking. Fully expecting him to say no, and I get to make him guess. Now, he answered correctly, with confidence, and even used his hands like little puppets to demonstrate. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Tom, last bit. I've got an update. Robert the Bruce. Uh, Robert the Bruce, who took up arms against Edward I and Edward II of England, and who united against the Highlands and the Lowlands in a fierce battle for liberty... And a humble lowland knight, Sir William Wallace. He was a knight. Fuck, I didn't know he was a knight. He wasn't a knight in the film. Sorry. Uh, Sir William Wallace. Wallace killed the English sheriff on Lanark. Lanark. I thought it was Lanarkshire. Who had apparently murdered Wallace's sweetheart. Apparently that's legit. And me saying that out loud to you is completely irrelevant, as you've shown me by not looking up into my eyes once when I'm talking to you and looking down at your phone and ignoring everything of what I've just said, so I've said that for no fucking reason whatsoever, apart from hopefully there's a listener out there that still cares. Thank you for that, Joe. That's fascinating. I hope you enjoy yourself on Saturday at Murrayfield against Scotland. We've chatted for quite a long time here, so Steve would like to insert some adverts, and then after the adverts, we shall welcome a vet. Insert here. On Joe Marler's show... Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. Right, Steve, do you want me to go? You sure? Our guest today is a vet. His name is Gareth Steele. You're a vet- veterinary. Veterinary. Oh, it's such a weird word. Are you a veterinarian? A veterinarian. So there's, yeah. What are you? So I would just call myself a vet, to be honest. I think the US, they, they quite often use the term veterinarian. Veterinarian. Um, just, just a little bit clumsy, but oh. vet's fine. Tom, are you aware of where veterinary comes? What a fucking weird word! Are you aware? Of, are you? Are you? Are you aware of where that word comes from? I would hazard a guess that it comes from Latin. It, no, you're right. It comes from the Latin meaning of veterinae, 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 meaning working animals. Well, that sort of makes sense to me, Joe. Yeah, not as interesting as I was hoping it was going to be. But Gareth, how? Uh, why? Why did you become a vet? Do you, do you have a massive love for animals? Have you always loved them? I mean, I grew up in a household where we, my mother certainly used to put a load of um, sort of old sort of food, uh, cat food particularly, in the garage, and the garage was effectively an elaborate cat trap. Uh, so I think we topped out with about 
13 cats at one point Whoa. Uh, in the house. And I, I, I think, I suspect my mother... I, sorry. So your mum was, was an actual version of the crazy cat lady? Uh, I mean, I don't know if she's ever going to listen to this, uh, so I, I don't want to say yes, uh, but... <laughs> you know, I think they're perhaps some of the same traits, no doubt. So yeah, so we had that, and then we had obviously had a dog as well. But I don't think I'd necessarily use the word love because uh, it can be a bit of a love hate relationship. But yeah, I've definitely always had an, an affinity for them, no question. So do you get bitten very often in your day to day life? Yeah, it's funny you ask about being bitten actually, because uh, certainly I don't know if you can make that out, but um, this is a this is a cat bite uh, from yesterday. Um, and I can tell you now, it's, it's pretty painful. Being bitten is kind of one of those things that it's going to happen probably every six months or so. No matter how careful you are, you have that odd animal who just will go from, rather than giving you a few warning signs, it will just go for you uh, and bite you kind of thing. Uh, I think the difficult thing about it is um, perhaps the fact that, you know, some owners have a, a slightly kind of, a slightly warped attitude towards it. I can remember distinctly a couple bringing in a little rat and they're saying, oh, he's, you know, he's terribly ill. Uh, and of course, he's he's tiny, you know, so you want to be very gentle with him. And I went to try and examine him and he sunk his teeth into my finger. <laughs> and of course, what I wanted to do was like launch my finger skywards. But of course, I had to try and, you know, <laughs> sort of discipline myself to, you know, try not to assassinate him by throwing him against the ceiling. And this couple just looked at me with glee in their eyes and said, oh, that's fantastic. He must be feeling better. He would never have done that yesterday. I was like, you know, how about just that marginal concern for the fact that his teeth are like embedded in my finger, you know, like tiny little bit of concern <laughs> for me wouldn't go amiss here. Um, so you do see that quite a bit where, um, you know, it's assumed that it's just one of those things and doesn't really affect your life. But um, certainly dog bites can be, I mean, my, and funny enough, my, my missus and I were out in Sri Lanka recently and we did some volunteering work for a month and she was actually bitten by a dog. And I mean, you know, she didn't open wound in her leg for about a month. So it's, uh, what? It, it can go, it can be, yeah, it can be pretty nasty. Yeah, I only ever, I only ever loved one hound, and Rufio. Rufio, and I've never, I've never got over it. I've really, I really, really have never got over it, Tom. Um, but I, I love, I do love a dog. I loved a cat growing up. I loved a hamster growing up. What other animals do I quite like watching? Uh, Can I have the name of the hamster and cat, please? The hamster was called Hammy, and the cat was called Blossom. <laughs> Not Catty. <laughs> it's called Blossom. What other animals do I really... Oh, I like a horse. I do like a horse. And uh, a lion. I like looking at a lion. What about you? Well, I've just had a slightly awkward conversation with my eight-year-old son, Jonty, who is homeschooling at the moment and has been, because of COVID, and has been set some homework, which is about beavers. So I've just had a very difficult lunch where he has asked me and Murph's a number of questions about how big beavers can be, <laughs> whether beavers grow fast... <laughs> What's the biggest beaver either this have ever seen in our lives? Whether people have pet beavers and uh, the fact that in his homework it says that beavers can be as much as a metre long. <laughs> metre long beaver? It's a big beaver, isn't it? I don't know about you, Tom, but I feel uh, somewhat uh, torn in my head between what a pet is and then when you've just men mentioned there that uh, someone brought a rat into you, Gareth, I was like, "What the fuck is someone bringing a rat to you for to to have treated?" Like, I, 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 Tom, help me. Like, am I being out of order? I am being out of order. Aren't I, I don't know. I'm going to. Um, I think we should list a selection of animals, Joe, and Gareth can tell us if, in his professional opinion, they count as a pet. I'm going to start with chimpanzee. Uh, no, I think actually, to be honest with you, if you've got a chimpanzee, it's more like a captive. They belong in the wild. As if you've gone for fucking chimp as your first option, you nut. <laughs> but I, I thought you were going to start off low. Go on then. Uh, okay, so cat, dog, yeah, they're pets. Um, 
Like, what if I what if I brought a chicken into you? Now I know they're a farmyard animal, but say I just I used to have chickens and I don't have a farm. Say I was like, oh, this strawberry the chicken was poorly because the other the other three were pecking its eyes out because of the pecking order. I didn't actually know that that it's was a thing. It comes from, yeah, sure. I thought it was just an old saying, but apparently that's where it comes from. I was like, fucking what? hell, no way. Is that? Yeah, that's where it comes from, Tom. Come on. Explain. I'll pass over to Gareth. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so first of all, yeah, I mean, so they obviously, so chickens have like a well-established hierarchy and they basically establish that via sort of bu- effectively bullying, really. And it's the kind of the most aggressive chicken that pecks the others and hence the kind of pecking order. Um, so that one gets sort of preferential access to resources and stuff. They are traditionally, obviously, a, a commercial species, and certainly that was the way we were taught about them at vet school. So all the kind of interventions, uh, health or for health, are done at a kind of flock level. So you might have 10,000 chickens, and if they're, you know, if you're starting to see some be ill, then the answer is often to say, well, hang on, we'll just we'll slaughter those 20, we'll post-mortem them, we'll figure out what's wrong, and then we'll vaccinate or treat the remaining 9,980, I think. Is that mathematically correct? <laughs> um, but actually what we're seeing now is chickens that people are adopting them. So after they've been in the chicken industry as layers or whatever, uh, I think there's Give a Hen a Home, there's a British Hen Trust. So people are actually buying these and then they're becoming household, well, garden pets. Uh, so people are bringing them in exactly as they would a normal pet. And... That's actually, it's quite interesting because basically small animal practitioners, that, that's not what we do. You know, we traditionally, we've not had anything to do with, with animals like that for probably a generation, but more and more people are bringing those in. So that's kind of forced us to actually kind of reevaluate that. And certainly for myself, I mean, I had to, I had to literally like spend, you know, a couple of days reading up on sort of chicken biology because I did, quite frankly, I was clueless because I'd forgotten it all from, from vet school. I had to learn it all again, treat this, this lady's chicken. I think she spent three or 400 quid on it. And uh, she basically said, well, look, I'd do this for my dog. Why not for the chicken? And I guess that highlights what a pet is and what a pet isn't, is the value of the animal really comes from your perception of it, not from some like innate quality of the animal itself, if that makes sense. So on that basis, Joe, I imagine you could have, for example, a pet cow. Uh... If you love the cow. Well, I'm sitting on the sofa watching the latest series of Afterlife and my pet cow's just lying next to me whilst I stroke its udders. Are you having a laugh? Like, that's not a pet. Is it a pet? That's not a pet. Like, I love animals, but I love lions, but I don't, they're not a pet. You can't keep them as pets, can you? All right, okay, lion. Is a lion a pet? Uh, Yeah, again, I would say, I would say no. And even the ones that you have seen that are kind of quasi-tame, they're still really, really dangerous. Um, Even just looking at it from a human perspective, because ultimately it is a wild animal and all it takes is for its sort of predation mode or hunting mode to kick in and, uh, you're going to look a lot like a little bit of meat. That's not a situation you probably want to find yourself in, quite frankly. Tiger King. Oh, my God. Fucking Tiger King. That was mental. All the exotic cats that he had. But what is the difference between him deciding that I want to have a pet lion and me wanting to have a pet dog? Dogs were meant to be originally meant to be in the wild, weren't they? The cats were meant to be in the wild. Like, surely we were all meant to be in the wild. What, what, I don't understand the difference. What I would say is... If you look at human history, you could argue that we've co-evolved with dogs. So what I mean is that, you know, if you go back 10,000, 20,000 years, you will find ancient humans and you will find the remains of dogs, you know, with them. And in some cases, you know, the dogs have like, um, you know, they're buried in like a ceremonial fashion. They obviously have value and so on. That's not really true of, you know, chimpanzees, of tigers, of lions and so on. So they don't have that. They've not evolved alongside us. So whilst they can tolerate us and... 
you know, certainly in extremists, obviously some animals being raised by humans because there's not much other option. Uh, you know, I don't have any problem with that, but I think where they can be in the wild or, you know, indeed with other animals of their own type in a zoo or something, which is a, a poor second, then that's where they should be. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. <laughs> I'll save your blushes, Joe, by asking Gareth a related question. Um, what are the best pet names that you have come across in your professional experience? Oh, God. Um, so uh, you tend to find these things go in, uh, go in cycles. So we had like the Game of Thrones period for a little while where the car park would just be full of like Khaleesi's and so on. <laughs> you see Khaleesi and like five people would put their hand up and you're just like, oh, God. You'll certainly get someone come in, they'll have a Skywalker and a Princess Leia. I think I had a lady the other day who'd, who'd named her, her her animal. It was called The King. The King. Uh, and I genuinely, I, I thought she was joking. Um, you know, she had a cat basket. I said, oh, excuse me, who's in the cat basket? And she wrote, it's The King. And I thought it was a nickname or something. So I said, well, what's his appointment going to be listed under? Uh, and she's like, no, it's, it's, it's The King. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, sure. Um, King, comma, the... I, I quite like people giving their dogs like just very human names, like Colin. I always, <laughs> I, always, I always think, what do they shout when it's like out doing stuff in the park? Like, Colin, stop shitting in the flower knots. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just like the concept that someone thinks they've got like a really wayward son somewhere that's like rooting around digging and then going for a poo in the, in the plant somewhere. Fenton! Fenton! Oh, Fenton! Oh, bloody hell, Fenton. Bloody hell. Um, Tom, did you have any animal, uh, any, any pets growing up? We had a dog when I was very little. It went mental and savaged, I think, my little sister's teddy bear. And as a result, had to be removed from the family environment because there were small children around. Um, mm. My little brother had um, once was once given a hamster under slightly difficult circumstances when, and I know he'll be offended that I'm telling this story, when at the age of five, he developed what can only be described as pussy foreskin. And was told by the doctor that he would have to be... Actually, he wasn't told by the doctor. My mum was told by the doctor that he would have to be circumcised at the age of five. And my parents' way of making this situation, this awful situation, slightly, ever so slightly less bad, was to promise him a hamster. Wow. That's that's absolutely ludicrous. Would you get a cow in exchange for castration? I mean, is it? Uh, you know, the, the... It's a sliding scale. There's a standard sliding scale for this foreskin hamster. Yeah, it's like would you have a leg off in exchange for a dalmatian? <laughs> Discuss. Out of all the animals growing up that people like friends had different like cats, dogs, hamsters. A couple of them had rabbits, and as cute as they look and as soft as they feel. I was always the most scared of them, mainly because like you never like their their mouths are all fucking hidden, like their actual teeth are hidden, so they look all cute. But you know that any minute they're just like and just like fucking take the top of your finger off, and you're like, no, I, I can't trust a rabbit. I don't trust humans, let alone a fucking rabbit. Um, have you had any issues with with rabbits, Gareth? They're actually a really interesting species because I think I'm right in saying they are now the third most popular pet in the UK. Uh, after dogs and cats and certainly for my generation of vets we considered rabbits to be i mean we literally used to refer to them as exotic uh, because we we really didn't know a lot about them and uh, because they become so popular uh, we now kind of have to treat them fairly routinely so um again that's something where like for someone like myself you know that's something that i've actually had to learn mostly post vet school and sort of pick up uh, as i've gone through my career and try and be a little bit more open to that uh, i mean for example i mean for example when i grew up and um, we had loads of wild rabbits that had myxomatosis this mm. viral condition that can cause in fact it's really important you vaccinate your rabbits for myxomatosis actually if you have a pet rabbit but it's a viral condition that ultimately they, you know they stop eating they often lose their eyesight it's, it's a miserable way to die um, and if we went a family trip to the beach it was 
fairly routine if we saw a rabbit that was in that condition that we just kind of get a rock, knock it on the head and, and sort of put it out of its misery. Uh, and I can only imagine how, you know, absolutely profoundly horrified uh, some of my nurses would be if you did that nowadays. I killed a rabbit. I've got to admit, I have to admit, so I've got to get something off my chest on this podcast. Uh, I killed a rabbit. I killed a rabbit in cold blood. Um, and I don't know, I, I feel a little bit scared. I feel a little bit ashamed admitting it out loud, but I killed a rabbit. Um, it was a few years back and I was almost certain that it was possessed or had been in 28 Days Later, the film, that it turned into a zombie or something like that. And I was convinced that it had mixies, as my mate said. Mate, it's definitely got mixies. It's got mixies. I was like, what the fuck is mixies? He was like, mixomatosis. Like, he's fucked. He's like a fucking rabid rabbit. I went, okay, brilliant. Great alliteration. <laughs> what shall I do? Well, we've got to put it down. I went, well, I haven't got any fucking ketamine on me, have I? And the only thing I did have was a stick and... Oh, fucking hell it was it was bad but i had to do it and it wasn't it wasn't well mate it wasn't well and there it could have been oh i don't know why i did it it's because i was a weirdo but i did i cracked it over its head and it, it was out it was a goner it was it was dead and i i justified doing that thinking that i'd put it out its misery because having mixy is really bad and i need you gareth to please put me out my misery and tell me that i did the right thing well, no, no pressure. <laughs> um, well, no, you're talking about exactly the same circumstance that I was discussing earlier. So they got myxomatosis. There are a small number of rabbits actually can be treated and recover, but the vast, vast majority don't do very well. Uh, and certainly if, it, if it's suffering like that, ideally what you want to do is get it to a vet. They can do it humanely. But if you're really stuck uh, and you do have to hit it over the head with a stick or something, then the best thing you can do is commit to it. I mean, being a massive bloke in your case probably helps. But I have to say from a professional point of view, please take it to see a vet. <laughs> Okay, this... I don't take that as absolution at no, all. I Joe. don't either, but this made me feel somewhat. There's there's two emotions in me. I feel sick right now that I've said it out loud, and that you're the first people that I've shared this with. But also mildly, you know, comforted by the fact that a professional vet has semi said it was okay. Um, you, talk to me about Thumper. Who's Thumper? It's not actually the, the rabbit's real name because. Um, Obviously, all the all the clients and indeed all the animals have had to change all their names and sort of preserve their anonymity. Uh, but Thumper's a, a rabbit that's uh, featured in the book. I sort of I'm working in an emergency hospital, and this lady brings a rabbit in, and it's I mean it was more morbidly ill, so completely collapsed, literally on the verge of death. And uh, I explained that you know the rabbit's very unlikely to survive. It would involve you know any treatment was going to be very expensive. And I must admit, I totally expected the lady to say, well. You know, in that case, we'll put him to sleep. And I think I probably had even heard her say that in my head before <laughs> she'd actually uttered the words herself. But unfortunately for me, she decided that she wanted to treat the rabbit. Uh, and I mean, I have to be honest, I was pretty surprised. So I had another go and explained, you know, the complexity of trying to treat the rabbit and the expense and the fact that it's very unlikely to survive. Fair play, she, she insisted we treat it. So, um, you know, we got it on a we got it on a drip, we gave it intravenous fluids and we gave it pain relief. We gave it some... Uh, some drugs to try and stimulate its gut because that's often a problem with rabbits so that the gut's not working so well no matter how they get ill and amazingly in the hours of the morning you know th- this rabbit was hopping around in its little enclosure chewing on some some hay um yeah so i went through i, I went through a period of elation where I, you know suddenly i thought god you know maybe i am good with rabbits secretly somehow <laughs> I, you know i have this ability to heal them uh, so i phoned the lady to give her the update so i rang up and uh, you know said despite all the odds that this this rabbit had undergone a miraculous recovery and just as i'd finished saying that uh, the nurse who was who was looking after him sort of ran into the room and silently sort of 
throwing her hand across her neck, like, you know, as if trying to sever her head, indicating that Thumper had unfortunately um, sort of suddenly died. But I felt too foolish to say that in the moment. So I had to sort of hang up, having left it at Miraculous Recovery, uh, and then go through to our, exo- our exotics <laughs> ward and perform like a, a really detailed but completely unnecessary examination of the animal. Uh, we're about like nine, you know, like probably a couple of minutes to ascertain that, yeah, it was in fact dead, exactly as the nurse had said. Um, you, so I, I went through a brief phase of where I, I contemplated trying to find a similarly coloured rabbit, but <laughs> you um, absolute, eventually had to confess. You absolute piece of shit. I thought I was bad whacking a rabbit over the thing, but you've just you've just taken someone round a fucking emotional roller coaster with their bloody poor thumper. If um, an animal is to uh, fall into cardiac arrest. Is it possible to bring them back? And the reason I ask this, Gareth, is because I've been sent a video by my mate Big Al. I've, I sent this to you this morning, Joe. Yeah. And I'll try and describe it to you, Gareth, if you're not familiar with it. It's a woman who appears to be giving what you'd call mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to a pigeon, but obviously you'd have to call it mouth-to-beak resuscitation. And she d- <laughs> she's pretty much doing everything she should do. Like she's putting her fingers where she imagines his nose is and then blowing into his beak. <laughs> And then, and then she does a little, a little tiny press on his chest with her middle finger. And then as she writes the pigeon up, Joe, his, <laughs> his head just falls forward, making it quite clear that the pigeon's neck has been broken for some time. <laughs> but um, I, had to, I had to salute her fortitude. Can you bring animals back from beyond the brink in that fashion? Yeah, no question. I mean, pigeons would be very difficult for us to take for, for a number of reasons. So uh, birds' lungs don't work the same way our lungs work. Their rib cage is very differently shaped. You'd struggle to compress the heart without, you know, making things significantly worse. BLS, so basic life support, I think we call it in humans these days. Uh, yeah, that's entirely possible in, in dogs and cats. We actually have um, resuscitation protocols that are not so far removed from what we do for humans. So we get intravenous access. So we immediately start chest compressions, give them some oxygen, try and get an tracheal tube in so we can artificially inflate the lungs. Uh, and then we'll try and we'll give them adrenaline. And uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes we can we can get them back, even, even rabbits, um, certainly in the hospital environment. For humans and animals, if you rest on the street with no one there, your chances of survival are very, very low. But obviously, if it's if it's in a hospital or in that environment... I think that's what happened to the pigeon. It sounds like it had some other stuff going on in its life, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I don't think that pigeon was coming it's back. fucking um, but ridiculous. Absolutely, hat off to the lady for this trying. This is ridiculous. Just the video itself was the... <laughs> what did... <laughs> just... <laughs> And then, and now I'm trying to. And then you're saying giving a dog mouth to mouth. Fuck me, mate. Jesus Christ. Like trying to give my dog, either of my dogs. Ah, oh, especially Bean is breath. I'm not going anywhere near that, mate. I'm sorry. I I'm gonna have to turn around and say, Bean, it's your time. I could I could save you if I gave you mouth to mouth, but your your hygiene level of your mouth is is bad. So. Sorry. Well, it's still uh, it's still pretty common, like for for calves, uh, if they come out, you know, covered in mucus, there's blood everywhere, and so on. Uh, and I mean, still, you know, if it's not breathing, uh, there's still the old, you know, sort of blowing its nostril and stuff like that. And next thing you know, you've got mucus on your face, and and so on and so forth. So most vets will try pretty hard, despite the mucus and all the rest of it. And we'll usually give it a good go to try and uh, try and bring things back from the brink if we possibly can. What Gareth? I mean, we're talking there about saving things. What when things can't be saved? What is the biggest? the single biggest creature that you have unfortunately had to assist into the next realm? Oh, good question. Uh, yeah, that's probably going to be a horse or a bull, I would say. Yeah, probably a bull in terms of weight. How do you go, how do you go about putting a fucking giant bull down? Because we, we had our one of our dogs 
a vet a veterinary nurse vet, a vet nurse <laughs> come out and do the the injection at home and it was just nice and peaceful and cozy just gently slipped away and it was really sad but lovely and gentle you know apparently although the dog could have been fucking in agony for all i know but we don't know because it can't tell us but it doesn't matter how are you putting a ball down you're just putting a bigger injection in it so, for example, if a big animal like that breaks its leg and it can go into the food chain, so i.e. it hasn't received antibiotics recently, it's not, it's not ill and so on, then um, what we do is we, we shoot it. Um, so basically shoot it in the head, quite a specific point, because they have a very thick and resistant skull. And then you'd um, usually ask the farmer to sort of lift it up by its back legs with a, a tractor or a digger or something. Uh, and then you'd you cut its carotid arteries and allow it to bleed out. Uh, and then it would go to the factory and it would it would go into go into the food chain. I think one of the most difficult days I think I've ever had in the job was was trying to put down a bull that had broken its leg. It was it was really aggressive. The farmer couldn't get near it. I couldn't get near it. I had a tiny little revolver that had a single a single chamber, so it only had one round at a time. So and it had a, you know it had a range of like a maximum of something like five meters. Um, and when you got anywhere near this bull, it would attempt to kill you. Um, so uh, I had a, a few hours of being chased around a field by this bull and chased around around tractors and trying to avoid death. Eventually I survived and the bull didn't, but um, it was certainly a challenging morning to say the least, that's for sure. So you used an, you used an actual gun, not one of those things that um, yeah. that guy in that film fucking... So yeah, I couldn't be no country moored. for old men. That's it, no country for old men. He goes around with that big gas canister like... Mm. That's scary as fuck, but it was pretty cool. Very scary. So I, at the time, I had a I, like a free bullet gun, so a, a handgun, as you would think of it. It was quite a small caliber, and like say it, it had it only had one chamber, so you'd struggle to do a lot of damage with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we also sometimes carry captive boat guns and and also a lethal injection. The obviously a lethal injection, you the animal wouldn't then be able to go into the food chain because you've just filled it full of a, a toxin. Um, so we'd use that for animals that aren't going to, uh, they're not going to a factory, they're not going to be. Uh, going into the human food chain and things like that. Right, we've we've talked quite a bit about like the sort of death end. What about the sweeter end? Did you get involved a lot in the the birth part? Are you ever have you ever had to assist in that bit? Because that must be p- quite cute and like, oh, this is lovely. Yeah, sure. So I mean, that's definitely uh, that's definitely one of the more rewarding part of the jobs for for a number of reasons. Um, so a, a lot of our job can be quite technical. So you're kind of relying on equipment and drugs and things like that. Uh, for example, if you go into a calving, so you're assisting a cow to give birth. Actually, a lot of that is just sort of effectively manual labour. So you might find the calf is slightly, it might have a leg that's the wrong way or it might be the wrong way around or something. Uh, in which case, you're often trying to straight. So basically, a, a calf should come out and kind of Superman dive. And if it's not in that orientation, then basically you've got to try and get it into that orientation which usually involves um, yeah a lot of a lot of mucus and so on uh, as you'd expect. If that doesn't work, then we have to do a, a cesarean section. But in either instance, there's a, yeah, there's a real thrill out of the fact that first of all, it's your skill that's kind of achieved that rather than giving somebody antibiotics and, a, and an infection getting better sort of behind your back. It's a very physical sort of tactile task. And as soon as that calf or lamb or whatever is born and takes its first few breaths, I think that's. I think any vet would tell you that's that's incredibly incredibly rewarding. Does the mum survive of the cesarean? Yeah, that must be a fucking big stitch up job. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, funny enough, the, the actual cesarean. So, so cows cesareans are done with the cattle standing, so it's just local anaesthetic, and then we make an incision, or usually it is, uh, and then we usually make an incision through the cow's flank, so sort of just behind the ribcage. Actually, getting the calf out is basically you know cut through the skin, cut through the muscle, identify the uterus, cut a hole in the uterus, and sort of pull the calf out. But then you've got to reconstruct all of that um, somehow. And 
there's no doubt I think every I think every vet's had that sort of sense of imposter syndrome where you know you stood there looking at a cow with a massive hole in its side thinking oh am I am I really going to be able to put this back together mm. maybe maybe not <laughs> I guess it's quite handy they can't understand you when they say <laughs> they say that compared to saying that in a real uh, human cesarean section where you're like fucking hell I don't know if I'm going to put pardon what did he say what did he <laughs> Down there? Yeah, the cows might not understand you, but the farmer does. Uh, so you've got to make sure you say that a bit under your breath. But um, if you stick with it, it usually does work out in the end. Joe, have you ever seen a, the live show of a calf emerging from its mother? No. Like, what, in real life? Real In the real world, in front where, of you. Why the fuck would I have ever seen that really happening? Like, where would I have ever been to go, there's a calf coming out. Look, like, the nearest thing I've come to seeing something like that is when... Ace Ventura came out that fake elephant. Or <laughs> that was good. Yeah, I nearly mentioned that. <laughs> I remember seeing it when I was a kid on my uh, granddad's farm. And the thing that stayed with me, Gareth, was, well, number one, the amount of mooing that the cow did as the calf came out. Number two, the amount of slop that came out. And then number three, the fact that the calf just cracks on. There's no dicking about, is there, from the calf? There's no lying there. There's no, you know, relaxing for a bit. The calf, the calf just gets up and cracks on. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, I mean, that, that calf was probably a bit of a prima donna because they usually do a little bit of lying around. But um, yeah, very, very quickly. I mean, certainly within the hour, usually they're up on their feet uh, and they're looking to try and feed off the mother and so on. And yeah, you see that across loads of species, actually, is just how quickly they are sort of independent compared to us humans that are, you know, we're just incredibly vulnerable for the first, what, 40 years of our life in my case um <laughs> compared to animals i mean they're just uh yeah just, just amazing uh, i mean chicks are actually a, a good example so um chickens as in baby baby chickens um, i mean they're what's called precocial so basically they come out of their egg and they're actually pretty independent they pretty much can get on with life um which is you know it's, it's just astonishing i asked my kids i said about uh, i was going to speak to a vet today and I said you got any questions and <laughs> One of them turned around and was like, yeah, can you ask him why we can't hatch these eggs? And I went, pardon? They were like, well, why can't we just keep this egg warm and why doesn't a chick come out of it? I'm like, actually, as stupid as that sounds. Yeah, it's a bloody good question. I'm going to ask it because I don't know the answer. Why can't I get an infrared lamp, one of those things, the, the hot things, put it in a, a bucket of hay and, uh, you know, put the egg in there and just go, grow, chicken, grow. Yeah, so the main reason is that those uh, those eggs haven't been fertilised. On paper, all of the eggs you buy in the supermarket uh, were not destined to become uh, chicken. So they haven't been, they've been laid by the mother, but not fertilised by a male. I think I'm right in saying some people have done it and inadvertently there's been an egg in there that has been fertilised and they've actually managed to... I can imagine that was maybe with three range eggs or something like that. There's been an egg in there that has been fertilised and they've actually managed to hatch a, an egg they've bought in a shop. But um, yeah, generally speaking, it's not possible. We do have some questions, Joe, don't we, from regular listeners. Um, I don't know if you can answer these for us, Gareth. I'll go first. This is from Kate. And Kate would like to know, are you trained to work on all animals or only specifics? E.g. is a pet vet also able to operate on a killer whale? Right, okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the UK, I think I'm right in saying all vets are still technically omnicompetent, but there's a kind of caveat there, and that is that it's going to be expected that you'll restrict yourself to working within your competence. You can have a go at anything, but what you must have is informed consent. But if I say to Joe, 
hey, listen, you know, I realize for whatever reason you don't have the money to, to take this to a specialist. I can try and do the procedure, but I'll be giving it a very much, my, you know, my, my best attempt, you know, given the constraints. Then you then have informed consent. You can choose. Uh, and then, you know, I, I can perhaps sort of attempt the operation. In practical terms, Kate, if you're listening to this, the killer whale option, I'm guessing will be difficult. Gareth, you're based in Cardiff. You'd have to go, what, down to the down to the old docks to treat the killer whale, couldn't see them in the clinic? In that situation, I think I would just insist on them bringing it to the clinic. Uh, I think that would... Uh, <laughs> I think that would probably eliminate the problem in the first place. I just said, look... You're just calling their bluff, are you? If, you? if you want me to treat your killer whale, fucking bring it down. I can't make it down to the docks, I'm afraid. You're going to have to... You're going to have to get a taxi or... A low loader or, or whatever. We just we don't have a we don't have an orca response unit, uh, you know, available to crash out to that particular incident. Quick air break here, partly to thank our official sponsors on Patreon, who include the Emerald, Jade Ingram, the Marshall, Angus Marshall, not Gary Barlow, but James Barlow, simply the best. It's Mark Bestley, Tom Ryan, who also does his own podcast called Pabs Pod with his mate Eggy. John Dickie Johnson Dickinson The wily old fox, it's Dave Wiley All the way from California in the US of A It is Sebastian Skolvsky And we apologise, Sebastian, if we butchered your surname Not giving away his shot, it's Dan Shotton Aha, Marcus Partridge Never trust a man with two first names, it's Neil Stewart On my first whistle, Tom Anderson and enter sound man Ollie Sandy, who's having a tough time right now, and we are all thinking about him. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, and grow the show today. Right, listen up. We've got a new sponsor. Oh, yes, indeed, Joe. Wild Beer Co. have released the Six Nations collab box. Right, what's in it? Easy, Joe. Beers from England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, France, and, guess this, Italy. Is it perfect to share with my mates? It is perfect to share with your mates, especially if you're watching the rugby. Where are they from? Somerset. And they've teamed up with craft brewers from each of the countries in the Six Nations to create this mixed 12-pack, which includes citrus Italian pills, pale ales, amber lagers, and more. Six nations, six collaborations, better together. But there's more. Firstly, for each case purchased, they'll enter you into a draw to win over £800 worth of prizes from the Wild Beer Company, Kamado Joe, the barbecue people you love so much, and Jolly Hog, the meat company you love so much. That is better than any prize draw we've ever done on this show. It is, but here's an extra reason to buy the Six Nations collab box. For each one sold directly by the Wild Beer Company, 10% of revenue will be donated to the Campaign Against Living Miserably, otherwise known as Calm. And Calm are a brilliant cause, and they're very close to my heart. So, get your beers now at wildbeerco.com. So that's wildbeerco.com. Joe, as you know, the boys have got guinea pigs. And uh, as discussed previously on this podcast, the guinea pigs will often mug Murph off by uh, refusing to go back into their hutch at night time, hiding under the hutch. And then when she gets a stick to try and sweep them out, wait until the stick approaches them and then just doing a little hop. (laughs) 
over the stick. She's been out there sometimes for up to an hour of a summer evening swearing at the guinea pigs. We had an incident, Gareth, where she thought the guinea pigs were looking unwell and decided to take them to the vet. And for, I think, the cost of £100 per guinea pig, the verdict was that the guinea pigs might be diabetic. This then involved trying to put the guinea pigs in an empty bath and get them to pee on a stick. What? Which took almost as long as getting them to jump over a stick. It turned out, after eventually getting the is the guinea pig diabetic test done, that actually they just got a bit fat. Well, I, I mean, I must admit that that is news to me. Um, I've never, I've never been challenged with a guinea pig situation of, of quite that nature, and I, frankly, I'm not sure what I would do if I was. I think it'd be pretty unusual for a number of guinea pigs to develop diabetes simultaneously. That would be that'd be pretty strange. Yeah, that's a real challenge. I've never tried to get a guinea pig to, to try to sort of uh, get a guinea pig uh, to pee on a stick. Um, we usually just leave that to the owners, to be honest. That's probably what your vet did. Yeah, it was. So I, the other night, I was watching this. Re- a terrible series called The Tourist. I don't know if you've either of you have watched it. Been enjoying it, yeah. Have you? Oh fuck me. Well, I did it. I did enjoy it, but it was, it was like semi-addictive. But also, there was loads of parts of it that I was like, well, this is crap. Um, but I really want to know what happens. Anyway, on it there was this se- towards the end there was a section about people that swallow were swallowing certain things in order to traffic them across the border. And therefore, and one of them split and they've got all this sort of weird shit. And it always made me think of, Gareth, what is the weirdest uh, stuff that you've found in animals? I think the the thing that probably I remember most recently is um, I had a dog that, so this dog had a lump on it and uh, an older dog, we sort of diagnosed it. It was a a cancer and the owner decided they wanted to have this uh, this lump off. But we we x-rayed the dog um, to make sure that this cancer hadn't spread to its lungs because... We wouldn't want to operate in a dog where you know we're not we're not going to potentially help it. Um, and uh, lo and behold, um, there was uh, a rubber duck in its stomach. Huh. And uh, I you know sort of got the guy in and said, "Look, you know where these rubber ducks come from?" He's like, "Having a clue." And then it eventually came back the next. You know, we decided to operate on the dog the next day, and eventually came in. He said, "Yeah, I think my kids had that rubber ducks like like six years ago." Wow, uh, and it turned out that basically this boxer had eaten this little rubber duck um, like years earlier, and just it just so happened that it was big enough not to get jammed in its guts, small enough not to cause it really any problem. And because it's made out of rubber, it's relatively inert. So it's just, it's basically just been washing around this boxer's stomach for like six, seven years. Uh, but the dog was absolutely fine. It's amazing what they will eat. Uh, and there's there's all sorts of stories. I'm on a couple of veterinary forums on Facebook and there's, you know, everything from used condoms to sanitary products and stuff that dogs have eaten. And it's just, you know, I mean, that kind of surgery is disgusting enough as it is without having to, without having to deal with the kind of, secondary level of disgust with what he's eaten as well. Joe, we've had a question from Stuart. Stuart, Gareth, would like to know, um, and these are Stuart's words, not mine, what's the weirdest animal you've had your hand up? Ridiculous. The thing is, generally speaking, the weirder the animal, the less likely you are to have your hand up it because it's probably going to kill you if you try and do that, quite frankly. Um, So, for example, cattle, you know, like the reality is they're quite used to like fertility and stuff like that. And they might not particularly like it, but, you know, they'll tolerate you putting a hand up their bum to to find out if they're pregnant or not. Most wild animals will not respond well to that kind of thing. So if you are if you are considering a a career in veterinary medicine, please do not start out with uh, attempting to insert your hand in random animals to see if you have a see if you have some sort of, you know, sort of predilection for it, because that's that is not going to go. That is not going to go well. If someone wanted to, Gareth, what would be the correct technique? Let's say Joe has um, a mountain lynx. He's decided to get a mountain lynx and he's worried he can't get to the vets in Heathfield. It's closed. 
and he needs to check the anal passage of the mountain lynx. How would he do it? Right, well, I think Joe is in the fortunate position of, uh, you know, having access to a, a sort of small team of relatively sort of strong blokes. I think you'd certainly have to enlist uh, the, the rest of the pack as a minimum. Um, I think you probably need to try and maybe try and get the links drunk as well. Uh, I think um, <laughs> I think maybe if you can find like a decent single malt, maybe put that in his water bowl, wait for him to drink it, then restrain him, perhaps using the front five, you know, and then, uh, you know, and then uh, get someone to sort of carry out the the rectal at the back there and then hopefully like you know sort of uh, shut him in a corner somewhere where he can slowly sleep off his hangover but um yeah i, th- I think short of having a, a dart gun i think that's the only way i can imagine you doing it with the resources at hand i was gonna say gareth if you uh, do you perform like many surgeries and if so would it be easier to do surgery on a mouse or a horse what's what's harder to operate on uh, where I work now and with the equipment we have, it's probably easier to operate in the mouse from a kind of practical point of view. But obviously it's it's tiny, you know, so um, everything that's difficult in a cat or a dog in terms of like, identifying nerves or, or vessels or the right anatomical structure, obviously that's massively amplified because the whole thing is absolutely tiny. Whereas at the opposite end of the spectrum, I guess you've got the horse where everything's much larger, it's much easier to identify, um, but operating on horses is pretty difficult. So the endotracheal tubes are massive compared to what we use in humans. Horses' lungs are enormous compared to ours. They need specialist anaesthetic kit and so on. Um, if you brought me a mouse tomorrow in practice, I could probably operate in that. If you brought me a horse, I'm going to struggle. So, Gareth, have you ever inadvertently wanked off a pig? <laughs> Sorry, let me rephrase that. Gareth, have you ever inadvertently wanked off an animal... Or just accidentally aroused an animal when having to do the snip or do something like that? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. Um, so, um, <laughs> That's a good question. Have you ever wanked off an animal? <laughs> uh, so like us, uh, basically animals have varying libidos, shall we say. Uh, and certainly I've seen a couple of dogs who, um, you know, literally, if you, if you just sort of rub their back, then, you know, next thing you know, they're they're off. We do have a couple of canine clients that are uh, sort of excitable, shall we say, uh, and on, on a bit of a hair trigger. So, um, yeah, you just got to be careful. Uh, you just make sure you just sort of light stroking around the head. Don't, don't, don't go anywhere else. Maybe you could try and put some imagery in their mind that would put them off a bit like some people, if they're trying to hold back, might, um, might think of, I don't know, an aged politician or something. Maybe you could use a similar technique. Um, I don't know, a picture in front of them. What's the least erotic image you could show a dog? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we just, you know, I'm a scientist, so obviously we just, we don't have the data no. uh, on that one, I'm afraid. So we've got a fairly good idea what, what humans think is attractive and unattractive, but uh, I suspect they're not quite as picky <laughs> as I suspect. Well, if you listen to this and you're an expert in what makes dogs aroused, um, do let us know in all the usual places. Right, I this this is probably going to be one of my last ones, and I don't want it to. I don't want to end on a sour note, and I don't want you to take this personally, Gareth. Please don't take this personally. But why the fuck does it cost an arm and a leg to get any animal, particularly the animals I've had, treated by a fucking vet? Talk to me. There's a. I think there's a. There's a bit of a public misperception of, of whether or not that's actually true. So. I think in the UK, we're slightly deceived by the fact that ultimately our healthcare is free uh, from the NHS at the point of use. So 
how much healthcare costs is completely concealed from you. You've got no idea how expensive sort of medical procedures and so on are. So the result of that is people don't have a frame of reference um, for, um, you know, how much veterinary care costs. And we're kind of the, the inadvertent sort of victims of that. So to give you an example, you know, say we hospitalise an animal overnight, um, you know, you say, well, that's, that's going to be £75. People say, well, why is it £75 to, to hospitalise it overnight? But even if you just had a random member of the public looking at the animal overnight, which is, let's say, 12, 14 hours, well, the minimum wage is eight or nine pounds. So just, you know, simple maths would, you know, would leave you the price of what I think I worked out once. It was like 126 quid to have a lay person just stare at your animal all night without any idea of what to do. And that's without the drugs and all the rest of it. X-rays, for example, I think our X-ray machine when we bought it was about 50,000 quid. So the practice has to buy that. And then, you know, when you come in for an X-ray, then ultimately we don't make any money until we've paid off that that x-ray machine so actually vets in many respects get a bit of a bad reputation for sort of charging a lot of money and if you actually do the analysis on how much you're getting for your money in terms of a service if you if you think about a little veterinary practice they might have so for example where i work at the moment we might have four people uh, might have three vets on any given day we are everything we are literally we're a and e we are the oncologists we are the the gps the nurse clinic, um, you know, we're the, we're the radiologists, the surgeons, the orthopedic guys. We're all of that, but there's only three of us. And if you compare the number of services you're being offered from your vet to, for example, a general a hospital, you know, you're probably talking about something like 10 to 15 specialities which are embodied in one person. And obviously we're not as good at any one of those one things as, as, a, as an expert, but we're trying to offer a really good service across all of those. And we're trying to do it within the bounds that, you know, that people can afford. Uh, what I would say is, I don't think you are being charged an arm and a leg. D- don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm totally up for people coming back on that because I think veterinary care has got more expensive. But part of that is because we can do so much more. So I will uh, take that answer from you, which was incredibly detailed. And I will take that with me and get back in my box because I went semi-aggressive with the, the question in the first place and you've completely done me like a kipper and it actually now that I've thought about it I've gone you're bang on because technically we do pay for the human health care I mean what I always say to clients now is I mean I've got pets um, one of our cats he is well I say our only cat in fact believe it or not he's actually allergic to human skin and both my wife and I are human so that's uh, <laughs> that's a bit of an incompatibility um, and uh, he actually managed to rupture his own eyeball a couple what of years ago. What the fuck? Who's, who's allergic to... Yeah, I know. But there we are. But, you know, he he claw, I mean, he will claw himself until he bleeds when his skin is bad. Oh. And I mean, we sort of took him in because no one in the right mind would. And, I mean, a couple of years ago, he managed to rupture his eyeball and we had to oh. take him to specialists and they charged about £3,000 to graft his cornea, which didn't work, and then he had to have it done a second time. So... I'm both a customer and, you know, a sort of provider of that service as well. So, I, you know, I'm not, um, whenever people have that kind of, those kind of thoughts, I, I totally empathise with them. I get it. I understand it's expensive and I understand it's, it's not something everyone can manage to do. But it's still the case, I think, broadly speaking, that you get a pretty good service for your money. Actually, the advancement, you talked about um, how the quality of care has, has improved. That's why the price is probably going up as well. But... The advancement in care, I was completely surprised when my dog Rufio went into emergency vet hospital. Is it called an animal hospital? An emergency vets? Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he had a twisted stomach, so they had to operate straight away and they were going for fucking hours. And then through the night they went, oh, we we need to get um, some more blood. And I went, 
what do you mean? They were like, we've got to do a blood transfusion. I went, you can't do a fucking blood transfusion on a dog. Like, it's a dog, mate. Like, how are, you, how are you doing that? They were like, yes, you can. We haven't really got time to go through this, sir. I was like, okay, uh, where do you want me to go? So I had to go up to catering or something, middle of the night, to pick up a load of blood. Got there, and he's this guy's given me this big box to then take back. Unfortunately, halfway back... The original vets were like, sorry, mate, he's not going to make it. You're going to have to make the call. We could either get him up to London. That's going to take God knows how long. They were kind of implying, I don't know whether this is true, actually, but I was told that vets can't actually tell you to let your pet go or not. You have to be the one to make the decision. They can't say, we think you should put him down. Is that true? I think what vets worry about is clients feeling they've been pushed into it uh, and then regretting it later. For me, certainly, I try to lay things out as, as kind of openly as I can for the clients and, and lay out the kind of pluses and minuses of the various different pathways that they might take. And I mean, no one is ever going to be happy about putting their dog to sleep um, or indeed any other pet to sleep. But what we do try and get is that the owners are content that it is the right choice. Um, so, so I'll usually give people options. And if they're really struggling, then I will sometimes say, look, you know, if he was my animal... I would do this, but then I often, I'll often then stress and say, however, that doesn't mean that's what you should do. You know, I'm just saying, look, this is the path I might take, but if you want to go another way, that's, that's fine too. Um, I think so. I think we worry about pushing people into something they, they subsequently regret, but I think also if we're not helping people to make those decisions, then I would argue that maybe we're not really adding a lot of value in that, in that situation. Gareth, thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. Your, your book's called Never Work With Animals, and it's out now. So thank you very much, Gareth. Cheers, Gareth. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Could you ever be a vet, Joe? No. My, I still, I'm still haunted by my experience of Rufio at the vets and never seeing him again. And... Uh, Anyway, no, I don't think I could be a vet, but I really enjoyed talking to Gareth. Well, that's good, Joe. Uh, if you were listening to that and you enjoyed it as much as Joe and I did, and you'd like to support the show, you can now subscribe on Apple, Spotify and Patreon. Search for Joe Marler Show for a single, solitary English pound a week. You can get bonus content, ad-free episodes, and you'll be growing the show at the same time. Why are you telling me? Like, I know, because it's written down... And you tell me the same thing every week. And I don't understand why you look at me and tell me. I just like looking into your eyes, Joe. Fuck off. (laughs) 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 We've got to do this bit. Right, and to buy a bobble at, go to joemarla.co.uk forward slash shop. And you can order yours today. Yeah, nice. Uh, If you would like another podcast. (laughs) What was that? Yeah, nice. I thought you were just going to say hats. Hats? Right, no, hats rather than... You just said yours, and that's even better. To buy a bobble hat, go to joemarla.co.uk forward slash shop to order your hat today. Either or for me, Joe. Fuck. If you would like another podcast to listen to in the interim, let me and Joe recommend .com, the documentary series about the people of the internet. They did a really good series about Wikipedia. There's another one out now about Reddit. So, if you think the internet is this anonymous, faceless place, think again. Search for .com and get to know the people behind the scenes. Screens. Search for... <laughs> I just say, well... Search for .com and get to know the people behind the screens. Have we got anyone on next week? Get this, Joe. Our guest is someone who was captured by pirates. Old, is he? 
Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.